0: In the early 1980s, there was a fad that hit the scene called the Cabbage Patch Kid, okay? This was a doll, and everybody had to have it. The problem was that they had not made enough of them for the Christmas season. I think this was like 1983. And the Christmas shoppers all wanted to get these Cabbage Patch dolls for their entitled little millennial children. No, I'm just kidding. They were (laughs) totally kidding. That's not why this happened. Um, but they wanted to get these dolls, okay? And there were literally riots. They would go to the mall. People were fighting. You, you know, Black Friday, we sort of see this thing from time to time, and you'll see this woman running in and, like, shoving people and grabbing $15 $5 toasters from Walmart. I know you've seen the YouTube videos, so don't try to be like, I've never heard of this before. Come on. You've seen this before, right? This was worse. This was worse. There were, there were people... Like literally, like a kid would grab the Cabbage Patch Kid so he could look, Mom, and some other mom would come in and rip the Cabbage Patch Kid doll out of the kid's hand. It was that bad. And I think a lady broke her leg. I mean, it was rough, okay?
1: So what in the world do Cabbage Patch dolls have to do with our questions about God? As Pastor David continues our series, Dear Skeptic, we're going to find out. Here's Pastor David.
0: Um, so if you wanted the Cabbage Patch Kid, you basically had to fight. So my mom got all three of us kids Cabbage Patch Kids dolls. And when she got out of county jail for assault, we thanked, I'm kidding. They dropped the charges. It wasn't. So when I knew I wanted to become a lawyer. No, I'm kidding. Here's a picture of what my Cabbage Patch doll looked like. That's my guy, right? Yep, there he is. I don't remember what his name was, but that's what it looked like. Um, And these dolls, they were just cloth dolls. I have no idea what the big deal was. Now, they did have this really heavy, like, plastic head. And because they were so cloth and floppy, if you wanted to get a good boom going, you get your little brother (laughs) that plastic head. I mean, it was good stuff. So, which is probably what's wrong with him today. Um, No, I never would have done anything like that. Um, But the interesting thing about these dolls, for today's purposes, is that the creator of these dolls put his signature prominently on the hindquarters of each doll, Xavier Roberts. So I've got that. There it is. We're just getting crazy in church now. I've got doll nudity and everything. So it's super interesting that he did that and super creepy, right? Um, but the thing is, it showed... Let's go, to, go back to the other slide. I can't keep looking at dolls, but... Uh, this is going to totally... No one's going to listen. <laughs> Didn't think about that when I made the slide. Uh, <laughs> it showed in no uncertain terms, beyond any doubt, that Xavier Roberts had been the creator of that doll. And one of the biggest questions concerning God and the existence of God that some people have is that they say he's too hidden. They say that God is too hidden. They say that if he really existed and he really loved us, he would make it way more obvious. No one would have any doubt that he existed. Basically, the question that they ask is something like, why don't we all have a signature on our backside that says, made by God? Because then we'd know, right? If that's all he had to do, just made by God, we're good. Right? That would settle it. We wouldn't have any doubt that God existed if his name was prominently scrawled across each of your gluteus maxims. Now, mine would have taken more pen to write than some of yours. Um, And no, I've checked. There's no signatures. A couple weird freckles. There's no signature. Now you're all thinking about the freckles. Stop. Okay? Concentrate on what we're doing here. Uh, Welcome to church, by the way. Um, This objection is commonly called the hiddenness of God. That's if you you look it up in, in philosophy and so on, you'll see that it's called the hiddenness of God. Why is God hidden? And the objection goes something like this. This is the argument. It says, if there is a God, he is perfectly loving. If a perfectly loving God exists reasonable non-belief does not occur. In other words, everyone who is reasonable would believe in God. No one would be a non-believer and be reasonable. Then they say, reasonable non-belief does occur. In other words, there are people who are reasonable and don't believe in God. Therefore, no perfectly loving God exists. Therefore, there is no God. That's what they say. Let me put it in a slightly shorter version. It says, if God exists, he would make his existence very obvious. God is not obvious enough. Therefore, God does not exist. It's an argument that's made. C.S. Lewis describes this problem and gives some possible light to part of its answer. He says this, To some people, the great trouble about any argument for the supernatural or for God is simply the fact that the argument should be needed at all. If so stupendous a thing exists, ought it not to be as obvious as the sun in the sky? Is it not intolerable and indeed incredible? that knowledge of the most basic of all facts should be accessible only by wire-drawn reasonings? I have great sympathy for this point of view, but we must notice two things. When you are looking at a garden from a room upstairs, it is obvious when you think about it that you are looking through a window. But if it is the garden that interests you, you may look at it for a long time without thinking of the window. The fact, which is in one respect the most obvious and primary fact, and through which you have access to the other facts, may be precisely the one that is most easily forgotten. Forgotten not because it is so remote, but because it is so near and so obvious. And that is exactly how the supernatural has been forgotten. That's what he says. Basically, listen, sometimes we're looking for the wrong kind of evidence, and we miss what's right in front of our faces. Just so I'm clear up front about something concerning this issue. Um, You should know that God is not primarily interested in whether or not you simply believe that he exists. Even the demons believe that and shudder. It's not just about you simply believing. He's not primarily interested in you intellectually admitting that he exists. He doesn't need your belief in his existence any more than you need my belief in your existence. Okay? Okay. He doesn't need you to believe that he exists any more than you need me to believe that you exist. If I said, hey, by the way, I just want you to, I finally came around to it. Uh, Dad, I believe that you exist. He's going like, to why, thank you. You know, this guy's got issues. It doesn't, you don't need me to believe that you exist to know that you exist. Neither does God. He's not worried about that. That's not what God's worried about. God is primarily interested in saving you. He's primarily interested in having a relationship with you. But the question about the so-called hiddenness of God is out there. It's been put forward. It's been raised. And so as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to give an answer. We need to give an answer to it. So let's first admit a couple things. It's a reasonable objection, or, or rather, it's at least a reasonable question, I think, to ask. Why doesn't God provide sort of constant, irrefutable proof that he exists so that no one could ever deny him? Why is that so? And for the skeptics listening... I'm going to admit something else to you. This isn't just a problem for skeptics. This isn't just a problem for atheists and agnostics. This is actually a problem for Christians too. Not necessarily whether God exists, but why sometimes to us he seems so hidden. Why sometimes to us when we're going through certain things, we can't seem to grasp his presence. And I'll admit that. For Christians, we sometimes cry out to God because we can't feel him. And it's no secret. The scriptures attest to this. Uh, Job cries out to God, right? He's crying out to God because he doesn't understand why he's suffering and God doesn't seem to be answering him. In Psalm 73, Asaph's sitting there wondering, why is it God? I I about freaked out because what I see is these wicked people, they seem to be prospering while I'm dealing with a bunch of stuff. Why is that happening? Kind of, where are you? Why aren't you making it right? In Psalm 42.3, it says, My tears have become my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? Psalm 42.10, As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Even the Christ follower has times where they cry out to God and don't seem to hear back. So, Because people experience what some people call the dark night of the soul, why they sometimes also wonder why God seems to be hidden, there are really two forms of this objection, really two forms of the hiddenness of God problem. There's the unbeliever's objection and the believer's objection. The philosophical objection and the spiritual objection. In both cases, in order to work through this, we have to think well. We've got to think well if we want to answer questions like this. And we we tend to think with our emotions normally rather than with reason and logic. That's just kind of the way that we tend to roll. Uh, There's nothing wrong with our emotions. They're part of who we are and they're part of how we take part in the world and experience things. But they rarely help us understand complex philosophical arguments like the hiddenness of God. Right? So even though we like to think with our gut, it's not necessarily the way to go into this. We want to use logic. For instance, you know, for, for an example, an airplane. I don't know how many of you like to fly. I, I, you know, sometimes. But on an airplane, you know, you should know, just so you all know. I set you free last week with some important facts this week. I'll give you some more. It's like the safest way of traveling ever in the world ever thought of, okay? Like by a billion times over driving your car so safe. Yet, so many of us, when we get in that airplane, are like, mm-hmm, this should not, this metal tube should not be able to fly. I have a, there's a pilot that I know, we'll say his name is Buff, because that, that's his name. Um, he tells me that flying like you know, in the regular, continuous, lower 48 kind of states, wherever you're flying on one of these 737s is about as easy and, and, and locked in for these pilots and these crews as basically taking a drive to the grocery store, right? Now, he's never taken a ride with me to the grocery store. It can be pretty harrowing, but, but it's, it's nothing. This is very, very safe. And yet, emotionally, in my gut, sometimes I don't feel that way. And so when we're working through this stuff, one of the things we have to be careful of is that we don't start getting our emotions in the way of our reason. God has given us both, both to use. Here we need to be thinking well. And there's good news as we dig in here. And I hope you've had your coffee today because we've got a lot to get through. But there's good news that there are reasonable answers to the hiddenness of God objection, both the philosophical and the spiritual questions. So, One of the problems with this argument, let's just start out right at the beginning, is that you have to presume a lot about who God is and the way that he would act in order to say that if he loved people, he would make himself known that nobody could doubt. That's a presumption. That's an assumption about what God would do, right? That says, I know. It's basically saying if God existed, he would make himself known in a particular way. And that presumes a lot, right? It's like saying, okay, here's my argument. If God existed and loved me, then he would give me a million dollars. I don't have a million dollars. Therefore, God does not exist. I know that that seems kind of far-fetched in comparison to the other argument, but it's really coming from the same place. It's based on the same kind of reason. It's saying, I know what a loving God would do. And God has not done that thing, so God does not exist. But that's a big presumption. From the perspective of logic as a logical argument, it's really not a strong argument. If we are assuming that God created the entire cosmos, everything that's existed, he must be much more intelligent than us. He must have much more knowledge than us, right? We simply cannot assume that we know how God would act or how he would reveal himself or what he ought to do as a loving God. It's just not something that generally we can look into, not having the same amount of intelligence and knowledge. This is what uh, it says in Isaiah 55, 6-9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And this passage has to be true, right? It has to be true. It's obviously true. The creator of the universe must have higher thoughts than me. Oh, goodness, I hope so, right? I can barely make a salad without messing up. God made the Milky Way. And maybe even greater, he made the person who invented the Milky Way candy bar, which is also amazing. The skeptic may see this as sort of a cop-out, right? Uh, In other words, I'm simply saying, we can't understand God, so we're just going to have to take a blind leap of faith and believe that. But that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply pointing out that making the kinds of assumptions that this argument entails are not logically They're not logically solid. They don't follow logically. You can't make those kinds of assumptions when we admit who God is. You cannot also assume you would know everything he would do as a loving God. We cannot fully understand God's reasoning for the way that he does reveal himself to us. We simply cannot fit God's knowledge and intelligence in our little brains. G.K. Chesterton said, the poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician who seeks to get the heavens into his head, and it is his head that splits. The real objection comes down to, why doesn't God do what I want him to do? Or what I think he ought to do, what I think he should do? But there's a really important question that comes after that. Who are you? Who are you to tell God the way that he should do things? And what love, who are you to tell love itself what love looks like? There's this guy in New York um, recently, some of you may have seen this on the news, He's like 32 or 35 or something like that. And he's living in his parents' house. And his parents had to evict him from their house because the guy wouldn't get a job. He wouldn't do anything or whatever. And they're like putting notes on his bedroom door, like you need to get out within 30 days and whatever. And he's ignoring them. So they take him to court. They literally take him to court to get their son out of the house. And his response or reaction was, well, they should have, I mean, remember, 30-something years old, okay? They should have to, take care of me. And if not, I should get at least six months to find a new place. Like that's just a given. Like that's just, I'm entitled to that. Right. And we look at that kind of stuff and we're like, what are you talking about? You're enti- you're 30 something years old, get a job. You're not entitled. Who do you think you are to tell the law that it's wrong, to tell your parents that they're wrong? not entitled. This is the kind of guy that is the kind of cliche that they really do use for the millennial thing, which is totally unfair because millennials are not like that. But this guy was. And so, of course, the news is like, millennial, well, whatever. I don't think you're like that, millennials. Um, this guy felt very entitled. He thought he could tell the law. He thought he could tell his parents what they ought to do because that's what he wanted. But we're not in that position to tell God what to do. You, you God, you got to show love and you got to show yourself in a particular way at a particular time. Or else you don't exist. All right? Job thought he could do that to some extent. When Job was going through what he went through, he thought that he could question God. He's like, come on, I want to question you. I've been good, and I've had to go through this thing. And when God comes and answers Job, it doesn't go well for Job. Right? Who were you, Job? Where were you when I was forming the earth? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did that? You don't know anything. Don't question me. There's a lot more going on than you could possibly understand. We ought not to tell God what to do. We ought not to tell God what to do. My kids sometimes would ask me when I'd tell them to do Don't go out in the street or don't do this or don't do that. Sometimes they would ask me, why? Right? I don't know if your kids ever said why, but between the ages of three and four, I think I heard that word a million times right? Everything was why. And sometimes I can explain why, but sometimes the answer simply is this. I don't have the time to explain to you why I'm telling you to do or not do this thing, because frankly, at three years old, it's beyond your current comprehension. So you can ask, but you can't. You couldn't understand all the factors that are going into why I don't want you to do that thing. This is kind of like that. Why, God? Why don't you do it this way? Why don't you do it my way? Why don't you do it the way that I think it should be done? If I was God, I would do it this way. And he's kind of like, well, the simple fact is, is that the reasons are beyond your current understanding. And the simple fact is that because of that, the argument itself, in my opinion, falls down. Mostly because of the assumptions that it's making about how God would do certain things, which is, uh, which is absurd to suggest that we could know. Nevertheless, nevertheless, even though I think it fails for those reasons, I do not believe that God is hidden actually at all in the way that they're suggesting. So not only is the argument bad, but I think it's saying something that's untrue about the hiddenness of God. The real question is, is there enough evidence for God? that a reasonable person could, or maybe should, believe in?
1: That's an important question that we all need to deal with, and you'll want to check out our next episode for much more. And if you'd like more of this kind of no-nonsense Bible teaching in your life, come see us at Acts Church in Vancouver, Washington. You'll find easy directions and all the info you need at axchurchnw.org, or call us at 360-885-9000. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be right here next time for more with Pastor David Robinson here on Contemplate.